for making it possible for us to do this. Uh, at our age, things get a little harder. Some of you can appreciate that. Doubt if any of you are as old as I am. But uh, going up and down steps, that used to be so easy. Coming up's tough, but going down is... When I'm preaching, I'm 17 years old again. <laughs> Nothing hurts. Everything is great. When I get through, I'm 86. <laughs> Afraid I'm going to stumble going down the steps and fall on the altar, you know. So it's just, things change, and you have to know your limitations. But uh, I, uh, I'm delighted to be here. And I like being called Jimmy or Brother Jimmy. I, I decided as a young man that if Billy Graham could be Billy Graham, I could be Jimmy Draper. And so that's all I've ever wanted to be. And uh, God didn't expect me to be anybody else. But I'm the best Jimmy Draper God ever made. <laughs> and all he ever wanted me to do was be myself. And so that's what I've tried to do all my life. And I'm so grateful to be here. Now, I want you to get your Bible and uh, uh, turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Now, we're going to walk through this passage, and I want to give you... Uh, some hints at how you approach any passage of Scripture, it will be helpful to you. But in the seventh chapter of the uh, uh, book of John, beginning at verse 37, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And that's a great passage of Scripture. And to be very honest, I struggled for a year and a half with this Scripture because it's a great statement. Anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. But I, I, I felt like I was missing something. It, uh, I, I knew what Jesus meant, but... Uh, for it to, uh, yeah. and, and curiously, I wanted to know two, several things. One is, where was it said? When you read Scripture, you need to understand the context. You need to understand uh, who, who heard it first uh, and, and wh what place and what was the situation at the time. So we want to know, when did Jesus make this statement? Okay, at the very first, he says, on the last and most important day of the festival. Okay, another question. What festival? Jews had, it, had three major feasts, had several other uh, lesser significant feasts, but there was Passover and Pentecost and then tabernacles. Uh, your translation might uh, call it Feast of Booths. Uh, some translations translate it Feast of, uh, of the uh, uh, Shelters. But now we're in East Texas. So let me just make it simple for you. Lean-tos. <laughs> there was a lean-to. You've seen lean-tos. You see them on every ranch. They cover up for the, where the uh, cattle can come in and eat. Uh, it's just a, a simple lean-to. Well, that's simply what, essentially what he, uh, he uh, was talking about, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Lean-tos, if you please, uh, Tabernacles. It was the most exciting feast of the Jews. Josephus, in fact, the Jewish historian of the first century, uh, said that it was, the, it was the highest and holiest and happiest of all the feasts. 
I mean, the Jews love this celebration. Let me just tell you a little bit about it. If you could take uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, 4th of July, and rub them into one big festival, you'd have the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, it was the favorite feast, and it was for everybody. It was for the, not only, only, not only was it required of all Jewish men who lived within 20 miles to attend, it was open for the stranger, for the visitor, for the widow, for the widower. It was open for everybody, and it was, it was a time of celebration. Uh, I don't know whether y'all ever had carnivals around here. Maybe, maybe some of you look old enough to remember carnivals. Carnivals was a, was a noisy celebration, a lot of activities and people hollering and chanting and noise everywhere. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, it was a nonstop party. They had games for the kids. I mean, games for the kids to play. They had the ceremonies that took place during the day. The men and women couldn't worship together in Jewish life. If you ever look at the temple, there's the temple and then there's a there is a temple for the, uh, for the women. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, they built a grandstand overlooking down into the temple so that the women could participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. They put poles around the, the perimeter of the temple, about 50 feet tall, I'm told, and in the top was a, was a lamp that had to have oil to keep the lamp burning, and it burned nonstop for eight days. You'd see little priests climbing up and down the ladder to pour oil in to make sure that the wicks had plenty of oil so it could stay lit. It was a, a, an incredible feast. It was a feast of thanksgiving. It was a thanksgiving feast for the rain that God had provided for the harvest. The grape and barley and a harvest and wheat harvest had, had come in. But it was also an acted out prayer of, uh, uh, for more rain for the latter harvest. For there was an early harvest and a latter harvest. Latter harvest. And, it, and it was, it, it was uh, the people were told in, uh, in Leviticus 23, let me just read you a couple of verses here. In Leviticus 23, uh, he, uh, uh, Moses told them, you are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month. That's about the middle of October, uh, our, our month. And, uh, uh, and you have to rest the first day, a complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you're to take products of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, rejoice uh, before the Lord the God for seven days. And, the, and the, the idea was that they would build those shelters, those lean-tos, out of those, those branches that they were told to bring to the temple and rejoice for seven days. Now, they had to move out of their houses. Booths sprang up everywhere on the tops of the houses. Many of the tops of the houses were flat in the streets, even in the temple area. Everywhere you looked, there were, there were these temporary booths or shelters, tabernacles, that, that they were told to live, to, to live in. Uh, they, they couldn't make it solid. They wanted you to be able to, uh, God wanted them to be able to see the moon and the stars and have some breath so, uh, opening so the air could blow through there, the wind could come through, and, and so there were stipulations how to do it. Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees interpreted what I just read to you out of Leviticus to be what they were to do when they came to the temple, as well as what they built their booths out of. And so every time they came to the temple, they'd bring branches, 
And when something exciting would happen, and that was quite often, they would shake those branches and shout. I mean, it was a noisy, noisy, noisy place for seven days. By the time of Jesus, the eighth day, which had been a solemn assembly, had been taken into the, into the, uh, into the feast. And so... On the eighth day, that was the last day and the most important day. Now, why was it important? See, that's what stumped me. Why was this such a significant thing? And there were two words here in the, in the verse. I, I love studying, uh, studying words uh, in Scripture, but the, the word stood up and cried out. Now, you say, what's the big deal about that? Well, Jewish rabbis never stood up. When a Jewish rabbi taught, he sat down. If I were a Jewish rabbi addressing you today, I'd be seated. Don't you remember in Matthew 5 when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount? If you look at that first verse, it says, and when he had sat down, he preached the Sermon on the Mount. So you see, when it said Jesus stood up, that was very significant. Nobody stood up in public to speak except someone representing Caesar or the governor, uh, some royal proclamation that the people needed to pay attention to. And then they stood up. Of course, we know now Jesus was making a royal proclamation. He was making a proclamation from God about what uh, the Messiah, that he had come. And, uh, and so that stood up. That stood up. And, and I, I wondered, why did he stand up? And then the word cried out. The word cried there is a word that appears only uh, in the Gospel of John. It appears in the first chapter about John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. And then it appears in the, uh, two times here in the seventh chapter. And then it appears in the eleventh chapter when Jesus is said to have stood up and said, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, it, it, the cry is a word that is not just cry out. No, no, it was, it was a shout. It was an emotional word. It was a word that absolutely called for your attention. It was a word jet-packed full of, of meaning. And so that word, so rarely used, caused me to say, why are these two things so significant? And then, then I had another question. When in the midst of a carnival atmosphere and all the boisterousness, some historians say they don't believe the people even slept that week. They sang and prayed and danced in th through, the, through the nights. And uh, uh, wh when could Jesus have been heard? I mean, they had to be quiet. Well, let me tell you about one ceremony. One ceremony took place every day a white-robed priest would take a golden pitcher and take a procession of priests. They'd come down from the Temple Mount to the water gate, down through the water gate to the Pool of Siloam. They would dip their pitchers in water, and then they would come back, and they'd come up to the water gate. As they came to the water gate, they would quote Jeremiah 12, 3, With joy you shall awake water from the wells of salvation. And then they would pass through the water gate and sing the Hallel. And as they sang the Hallel, they would shake those branches, uh, the people lining the the way from the water gate up to the temple would shake the branches and, and there would be joy. And, and at the end, every time, uh, every time it said, the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, the people would shout and shake the branches. I mean, it was a noisy, noisy, noisy 
time. They would come up into the temple, and that procession of priests would one time around the altar. Then the priests would come one by one and stand before a silver funnel and pour the water in that silver funnel, and it would spread over the altar. When it did, the people would cheer, kind of like when the Texans score a touchdown or the Cowboys. Uh, it, it, it was a, it was, it was not, I mean, it was a noisy thing. Imagine when there's a burst from a crowd of uh, thousands of people in a football game and they cheer and it, it rocks the state. That was the kind of atmosphere. Now, when, when during that week of noisiness could Jesus have ever been heard? And then I discovered the answer. On the last day, they did what I described. When they came up, though, to pour the water into the funnel, there was no water in the pitcher. It was a visible demonstration that God's promised Messiah had not yet come. God's promise of a, of a, of a Savior had not yet been accomplished. And when, the, when there was no water in the pitcher, there was stony silence around the altar. The people said not a word. It was at that moment Jesus stood up. With a loud voice, he said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He interrupted the service. He broke into the ceremony. And he gave, in essence, he was trying to turn the people from the, uh, from the shadow to the substance, from the ceremony to, to himself. He was trying to say, I'm here. God's promise is fulfilled. And so now then, now then I understood at that quiet moment when there, the ceremony said there has been no Messiah, that's when Jesus stood up and when he cried out. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast about water about water, and it's, it's, it's very important uh, to realize how water was involved in this uh, celebration, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, two things I want you to see. One is there was an incredible, there was an incredible provision that Jesus offered. Incredible provision. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in, in essence, what he was saying was, if you're thirsty, I can satisfy your thirst. Now, we don't know much about thirst here. Uh, you know, if we get thirsty, we stop by DQ or Big Macs or Burger Box or somewhere else and get something to drink. But thirst was a, a terrible thing uh, in ancient times. Many times, people did not have adequate water and, and uh, I'm told that the, one, of the most, one of the most painful deaths that you could possibly experience would be to die of thirst. Your, your mouth dries out. Your tongue becomes so parched it rolls up like a scroll. And often you choke to death because you had, had no water. Water is very important to the human body. Doctors tell us that 70% of our body is water. So it's a feast about water. Because water, in, in water there's life. You can live a long time without eating. Uh, most of us have not tried that. <laughs> but uh, I had a staff member one time, went 43 days 
only drank water. You can live a long time without food, but you can't live long without water. It's absolutely essential to your body. That's why when you go to your doctor, your doctor will tell you some things and then says, drink lots of water. Drink lots of water. It's an essential thing. And so Jesus, Je- Jesus made an incredible offer or provision for the people. Uh, if you're thirsty, he described it as thirst. Now, he did not say what kind of thirst, but he's talking about what is the craving of your soul. What, what do you long for in this life? The, physically, your body craves water more than anything else. And, and so he would say, whatever your thirst is, whether it is a thirst to be recognized, to be somebody, could, could Jesus possibly give you recognition? Absolutely. Uh, Peter said, we are a royal priesthood. Revelation 1 says we are, we are a, a generation of Kings and priests, That's, we are somebody. And by the way, did you know that everybody's somebody in the church? Nobody's nobody. Everybody is significant. That's what being saved means. God loves us enough to reach down and save us, give us eternal life. And that makes us somebody. He can certainly give you recognition. Could he give you comfort? You had a funeral here yesterday. I had one Friday. Uh, in, in our area, uh, people need comfort. Could, could God, through Jesus Christ, give us comfort that we need? Absolutely. Paul told the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. So we can be comforted? No. So we could comfort others with the same affliction with which we ourselves were comforted. You see, li- listen carefully to me. God doesn't give you anything for you to enjoy. He gives you everything for you to employ, for you to use. Uh, you see, you, you can't outgive God. And when God gives comfort, you don't diminish your own comfort by giving it to somebody else. So we ought, we ought to be sensitive to each other. My dad told me, he said, son, be kind to everybody because everybody's having a hard time. And the truth is, I'm a hurting man preaching to hurting people. We all have our challenges. We all have our, our pains. We all have the things that, that set us down and, and, and turn us aside many times. Uh, so we ought to treat each other with kindness. We ought to give comfort and strength and encouragement uh, to one another. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, do you, do you thirst for comfort? What about wisdom? Boy, do we ever need wisdom. Uh, can you imagine living in, in uh, the world today compared to 50 years ago? It's amazing. I mean, pastors today, I'm so glad, Brother Raymond, I'm not pastoring. It is, it, it is one of the hardest places in the world to be. The pastor has not only to deal with the normal things of, of, uh, of, of, of tragedies and grief and successes and all the things that go. He does baptisms and marriages and funerals. He has to do all of these things. He often may speak before the city council or for other meetings. Think of how many times he has a chance to, to screw up. <laughs> hey, nobody's smart enough. Nobody's smart enough to do everything a pastor has to do. That's why he has to depend upon the Lord. And, and so we need wisdom today. Can you imagine 
uh, uh, growing up in, in today's world without the, without the Lord. I mean, we, who, whoever, uh, whoever dreamed we'd be talking about uh, that biological sex is, is not what, what you're born with, is not what you are. You are what you think you are. Who, whoever thought we'd be discussing that? We're not only discussing it, it's now being taught in our schools. And, and, and it's, it's very, I mean, uh, we, we're in an a, a uncharted territory. The future has always been something that we've never been to before, but it's never been quite as confusing as it is now. Could God give us wisdom to chart our course today? Well, James 1, 5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously, and he never takes back what he gives you. But the more you give, the more you get. Isn't that amazing? Whatever your thirst is, whether it's a thirst for something material or spiritual, whatever it may be, Jesus said, if you have a, a, a thirst, I can quench that thirst. I have to be honest. When I preach this sermon, I get thirsty. <laughs> uh, Y'all thirsty? Let's have a drink, okay? How was that? <laughs> oh, you, didn't, you didn't taste it. Let's try again. Was that better? Oh, you say, preacher, you're funning me now. No, I'm just telling you, trying to demonstrate a truth. To drink the water that Jesus offers, John says you just have to believe. You have to believe. I love John because he's so simple. And, and there's a demand that comes with this offer. He describes it as thirst, but the demand is, come to me and drink. Now listen carefully. Nobody can drink it for you. Nobody can drink it for you. And nobody can keep you from drinking it. But you have to drink it yourself. Not your father, not your mother, not your siblings, not your friends. Nobody else can do this for you. If you want to have your thirst quenched, if you want to have forgiveness, he offers forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His salvation is for all. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul later in Romans 10 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll do all of that, but he won't do it without you being involved. Nobody can drink it for you. You have to come to Christ. And drink it for yourself. That's what we see here. And, and so he, he, he now brings us to uh, a, a remarkable promise. In verse 39, he says he, uh, that uh, verse, uh, uh, actually 38, those who believe in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Plural, streams of living water. Uh, he promises that when we come to him to quench the thirst of our hearts and lives, he's going to give us something special. He's going to make us, as we partake of the water that he offers, we're going to become distributors. 
He didn't save us so we could go to heaven. Thank God we get to go to heaven. He saved us so we could share the gospel with somebody else. You see, it's the purpose of God through the power of the Holy Spirit who is planted in us when we are saved that we become distributors of the gospel. And that's why missions and evangelism and sharing our faith is so significant. Why it must be a part of the vision and the plan and all of the church. Because God wants us who have been saved to help others get saved. My dad used to say that every lost soul this side of hell is, 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 uh, is, has as his benefactors every saved person this side of heaven. Every one of us who is saved. God didn't save us, just take us to heaven. If he did, when we got saved, we'd go to heaven. We're still here. What's wrong? God's not through with us yet. Getting saved wasn't the end, it was the beginning. And you see, that's why God put the church here. God put the church here so the church could be a distributor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't do it by yourself. But together, we can do it. This church is not a large church. It's a great church. A lot of churches a lot bigger. But as great as you are and as big as you are, you, you couldn't possibly support 4,000 foreign missionaries and as many or more home missionaries. You couldn't, you couldn't provide training for seminaries that have... Uh, our, our six seminaries are all in the top ten seminaries in enrollment in the United States. You couldn't take care of preacher boys. You've got two staff members who went through Southwestern. You, you couldn't take care of that by yourself. But... Participating with other churches like yours, of all sizes and all places, you can do it. We do it together. Southern Baptist Convention doesn't make you do anything. Do you, do you know that you don't have to do anything the Southern Baptist Convention votes to do? You, you're not required to obey. You're invited to cooperate. If you choose not to, it's okay. Nobody's going to come slap your hand and come say, uh, you, you got to do No, no. This church right now is Baptist headquarters. My dad used to tell the church in Houston where I grew up, said, this church is Baptist headquarters and never changes. I'll notify Dallas and Nashville and tell them where it's going to be. Because, that, see, in Baptist life, every church is Baptist headquarters. And, and nobody tells us we have to do anything. But we do it because we cooperate together, and the reason we cooperate is because we share a common focus. We belong to Jesus Christ. We've heard him say, you're not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body and soul, which are his. You don't belong to yourself. This church doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. And together, we can do incredible things. Let me give you two illustrations. In, in the Holy Land today, in Israel today, there are two, basically two bodies of water. Uh, there's the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is a beautiful body of water. It's about 13 miles wide, about 7 miles deep, uh, or, or in, uh, across. It on, it, the depth of the Sea of Galilee is only 140 feet. Now, to give you an idea, this ceiling's probably about 25 feet, 30 feet. 
Sea of Galilee, just about 140 feet. But it's a beautiful water. You, if you've ever been to Israel, you, you can never forget topping the hill. And when you get to the other, to, to the peak, you look down in the Sea of Galilee. Incredible body of water. Jesus did most of his life near that body of water. It gives life. Israel is a desert, but it blooms like an arboretum because water from the Sea of Galilee is pumped all the way to the south of Israel. And everywhere that water goes, things come alive. Uh, it's an incredible body of water. But out of the southeast end of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows. If you're on a crow's back, it's only about 75 miles. If you're in a canoe, it's about 200. But it's not far down to the Dead Sea. That's the other body of water. Now, the Dead Sea... Uh, is dead. <laughs> Nothing lives in it. There may be some microscopic uh, 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 microbes that live in it, but it is heavy with men, with, uh, uh, with uh, mineral content. You, you could read your Beaumont newspaper sitting up in the Dead Sea and we wouldn't get your paper wet. You can't sink. It's unbelievable. But it's dead. Now follow me quickly. The same water in the Sea of Galilee is in the Dead Sea. Same water. Why the difference? Why does one live and the other die? Okay, follow me. Sea of Galilee lives because out of the northwest corner there are three little rivers and the snow that melts off of the mountains in Lebanon, when they melt they come down and those streams provide fresh water at the northwest end of the Sea of Galilee. Then out of the southeast end, Sea of Galilee gives water. It gives water at the Jordan River. It receives and it gives. And everything lives. But the Dead Sea, it receives and it receives and receives and dies. Same water. Why? Sea of Galilee receives water and gives water. Dead Sea receives water and never gives water. If you teach Sunday school, y'all do have Sunday school here? Okay. Thought you did. All right. If you teach Sunday school, maybe you reached a point in your life and you thought, you know, I really need to be taught I've been at this a long time. Uh, you probably came to your pastor or Jeff and said, I, I think I'm going to take a sabbatic. I'm not going to teach this year. I need to be taught. Now, now, let me just stop before we get much further. I hope you never use that excuse. If you did, it was a big mistake. Because who learns more, the teacher or the pupil? The teacher. At least I would hope the teacher knows more than I know. Uh, you would too. Uh, uh, you see, uh, God made us to give away what he gives us. And so you may want to take a break sometime. I understand that. I'm, I've been a pastor, and a lot, of, a lot of Mondays I want to take a break. Uh, you, you know, you just, uh, it's, it's hard work, and sometimes you just need to get away from it. But you don't stop doing what you're doing 
because you want to be taught. Now, you're going to learn more while you're studying to teach. And the, the point is very simple here. The, de the Dead Sea dies because it doesn't give. The Sea of Galilee lives because it gives. It receives and it gives. Now, we'll make an observation. Now I'm going to make a statement. You are going to be either a Dead Sea or a Sea of Galilee in your life. Your choice. Nobody's forcing it on you. Now, now listen, I'm, I've been around the block a few times. I'm in my eighth decade. I've seen a lot of things. Uh, but I'm going to keep preaching as long as I can preach. My throat gets a little weaker. As long as I can speak, I'm going to preach. Getting up steps is really hard. But as long as I can do it, I'm going to keep preaching. When I can't get up steps, I'll have someone put me in a wheelchair and take me up steps. As long as I have energy and a voice and strength, I'm going to preach. I refuse to be a dead sea. Now listen to me, you older people. Listen to me. When we get older, we have a tendency to be grumpy and grouchy. And we don't like things because it's not the way it always was. Don't do that. If you do that, you're going to be a dead sea. Every, I mean, throughout Scripture, it talks about sing a new song unto the Lord. Every generation has to sing their songs. You sang some contemporary songs this morning and, and some hymns. Every generation has to sing their faith. They have to, they have to announce their maturity uh, in Christ and, and how they have discovered the Lord. So for God's sake, now I don't like some of the music. I like what y'all had this morning, Warren. Where'd you sit, Warren? Oh, there you are, right here. Uh, I, I like those songs, but there are some contemporary songs I don't like. But you know what? I've learned to appreciate them because my grandkids like them. Am I going to destroy my grandkids' faith because I don't like their music? I mean, have a break. Get over yourself. <laughs> have a grandson that says, build a bridge and get over it, you know? <laughs> I mean, hey, listen, sure there's going to be some things we don't like, but listen, uh, our focus is on the Lord and we do what we do because as a body, we've chosen to do that. You may not like some of the things your church does, but let me, let me tell you something. You don't like something the church has agreed to do because the church decided to do it, then you misunderstood your role. When you voted in a church conference, you gave away your vote. It's not yours anymore. You gave it to the body. And when the tally is made and, and the result is announced, it's your job too. You didn't like it, you didn't vote for it, but you gave your vote away. It doesn't belong to you anymore. There's never a time when we ought to create difficulty in church because of something we don't like that's going on. That is foreign to Scripture. And what God is saying is you're either going to be a dead sea, demanding, demanding, never giving, or you're going to be a sea of Galilee. Up to you. Your choice. Tell you one more illustration, real quick. 
there's a mystery about the great rivers of the world. Oh, for instance, the Nile River. The Nile River has a source in Alexandria, Egypt, and in Jinja, Uganda. One is the Blue Nile, the other is the White Nile. They're still arguing today about which one is the source of the Nile. They don't know. It's, it's up for debate. They flow together somewhere uh, down uh, the way and become the Nile River. Uh, let me tell you about another river. High up in the Andes Mountains, way up above the freeze line where the snow and ice never really melts, but when the wind is just right, the sun is just right, if you stand before an ice-clad rock, you may see a little gurgle, a little bubble of water trace a hesitant course across the face of that ice, of that, of that rock. It gets to the bottom and it drops down and joins other little bubbles of water. They become little rivulets. A little bit later, they become little streams. Then they become tributaries. And then they flow together and the Amazon River flows into the Atlantic Ocean at a rate of 7.3 million cubic feet per second. It is so powerful that the Atlantic Ocean at the mouth of the Amazon River is fresh water for 60 miles. That's what the church is to be. We can't be that by ourselves, but together. God's spirit within and God's power resting upon us, we can do it. We can do it. We can do what we can do here and we can join with others to do what we could not do somewhere else. And we, 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 are, uh, we, we are to be a force that everywhere it goes, things come alive. That's what rivers do. Uh, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel 7, 9 says, talks about a river that starts in the throne of God gets a little deeper till it's knee deep and waist deep and finally it's, uh, you just can swim in it and, uh, and then it makes a comment that says everything lives wherever the river goes. That's what the church is to do. I'm, hey, your job's not to be here on Sunday. That's your privilege. Your job is to be the church out there. Out there. Uh, you're the church when you leave just as much as you are when you come. And so God wants us to be distributors of that water. Now, let me just tell you what I want to ask you to do. If you've never been saved, I didn't say if you ever joined the church. No, it doesn't, that doesn't count. I didn't ask if you've ever been baptized. That doesn't count either until you get saved. If you've never received Christ as Savior, it's, it's very simple. He makes an offer to you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a guarantee. He'll save you. If you've never experienced... See, salvation is not just a doctrine, something we learn. Salvation is a relationship. We have the privilege of being in a personal relationship with God Almighty, the creator of this universe. If you've never done that, then right where you sit, right where you are right now, in your heart, you can just say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I turn away from myself. I receive your love and your grace. Invite Jesus into your heart. That's a decision you can make right now. I want to ask you to do that if you've never been saved. But most of you here have been saved. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Would you say to God today, my answer is yes. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, 
whatever you want me to say, just tell me. I won't debate you. I won't, I won't negotiate. Our answer is yes. Could you do that? Sure you can. So, some of you have been saved. I've been saved nearly 80 years. But I sure met the Lord a lot of times since. Wonderful relationship with him. We, we need to keep what Bertha Smith used to call short accounts with God. Stay close to him. Uh, Lord, here I am. Send me. I'll do that. Just tell me. My answer is yes. I won't, I won't grumble about it. I'll just be obedient. Whatever you say, just say it. I'll do it. Now you can do that. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then the pastor's going to come and extend the invitation. I want to ask you to use the time that I'm praying just to do business with God. And when we're through, he will give you directions about how you can find someone who will talk with you, pray with you, encourage you. A rededication of my life when I was 13 years old literally changed my life. Well, I remember when I was saved. But that teenage experience of building a relationship with God and entering into a relationship with Him in a way I'd never done before literally changed the course of my life. God's never through with us. You're here. There's a reason. Would you say, yes, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Father, I just pray that we'll be sensitive to your voice in our hearts. Lord, it's not my invitation, not even the church's invitation. It's your invitation to your people to refresh their relationship with you, to unconditionally surrender to your will of your life, of our lives, and knowing that you own it. So, Lord, we belong to you. And, Lord, when we've done what we as believers ought to do, there'll be someone here who says, I need to be saved. Lord, I pray that they'll open their heart to you and receive Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I distinctly remember about being um, at Jimmy's church on Sunday nights when I was in seminary is how much movement there was at the end of the service when they had the invitation. It wasn't people just sitting there, but they were responding to what they had experienced through the preaching and the teaching. And I know at Westgate, we don't often do that. We kind of feel like it's okay if we just respond here, but this might be an opportunity for us to say publicly, as Jimmy said, God, whatever it is, I'm saying yes. Have you been more like a Dead Sea than the Sea of Galilee? If we were to pull up your resume and your vocation as a Christian from whenever to the present, would it be Sea of Galilee or, or Dead Sea? When he was asking us about, you know, Jesus talking about what do you crave, I'm, I'm, a, I'm part idiot, and so I wrote, what do you grave? I looked at that, I thought, you know, that may be more true than not. Many times what we crave leads to the grave. And maybe what you're craving is not life-giving right now. What an opportunity for us to respond to this great message that we have heard today. It might be that you come to the front and you, you kneel and pray. Maybe you've never done that in your life before. But what if your life depends on it? 
a response, a public response. Say, God, I'm wide open to you. I'm going to be over by the cross where we usually are. And I'm going to ask our deacons if you guys would just kind of make your way to the back of the sanctuary. That way, if you don't want to come to the front, maybe you can migrate to the back and just pray with. And guys, would you take your wife with you just so that uh, if a couple wants to come and pray with you, that would be great as well. So uh, you've heard the plan of salvation. You've heard the gospel presented. You've heard the opportunity to respond. And now the question is, will you leave this place more like a Dead Sea or more like a Sea of Galilee? Your call, just like Jimmy said. Let's stand together and let's respond. You came from heaven's throne, acquainted with our sorrow. To trade the debt we owe, your suffering for our freedom. The Lamb of God in my place, your blood poured out my sin.
God bless you. See you back at 4 o'clock this afternoon.